1977, a Japanese film called House, or sometimes Haosu, was released, and it is probably the most unusual take on the classic haunted house scenario that you're ever going to see. Uh, on this episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, I'm going to be talking with James Harding from the Toronto band Villainist, uh, a major, major fan of this film, and in fact the man who introduced it to me some years ago. This film is extremely strange and experimental. There's really, really amazing cinematic techniques going on in it, and it's often shown to people in the guise merely of, you have to check this out because it's just so weird. I wanted to get past that where talking to James about this film, and hopefully we go some way to trying to uh, place a little context on it and explain how and why this uh, very, very extraordinary film came to be made. Made. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, I investigate stories of the strange both in reality and in books and in film, as on this episode, of course, we are going to be talking about the film House, or How Sue, and uh, explaining exactly how did it get to be made in quite the way that it was. Now, before I get to my interview with James Harding, I have a few bits and pieces to talk about. Firstly, there's a massive storm going on outside, so you might hear that cabin is rocking slightly um, and it is mid-February and very often we do get storms at this time. A lot of other parts of Ireland and even the UK have been getting some snow over the last few weeks. Not here. I guess we're just too uh, too, too much of a maritime climate really to, to do that. I love snow and I I, I would love some snow but it hasn't happened yet. We've, we've had not more than a day or two of it I'd say all winter. Anyway, Friend of the show, Chris Joyce, who was on our Alien Greys episodes way, way, way back, sent me a message this week. He's doing a mammoth rewatch of The X-Files. He's been doing it for years and he's still making his way through them. And he got in touch this week and said, Kian, I watched an episode of The X-Files that was all about numerology. And I went off on a bit of a rant because numerology for me is, is like like one of the most boring kinds of, you know, supernatural topics there is. It's basically like looking for things in your life and trying to match them and looking for coincidences and then trying to convince yourself that there's some reason to it or or some meaning to it. So to me, it's like really low hanging fruit. You know, there's not much there that needs explaining. You know, give me give me a monster, give me a UFO, give me something that is difficult to explain. I think the reason that stuff like numerology and, and synchronicities and just sort of conspiratorial thinking in general were ruined for me from an early age was when I was in college, I went through a massive Umberto Eco period. You know, he's a, he was a, an, an Italian writer who was, a, I think he was a medieval historian and he used a lot of that material in his work. And for me, his his most famous book is probably Name of the Rose, but for me, his magnum opus is, is Focal's Pendulum. And it's about these crazy guys who are who invent a, a conspiracy theory, you know, using all the old-fashioned conspiracy theories from history. They get the Templars and the Rosicrucians and the everybody you can think of and put them into one super conspiracy theory. And then strange things start happening around them and other people start believing it and people start dying and it goes crazy from there. But the bit that has always stuck with me my whole life is when the main character, Kasaban, I believe, 
is is about to really go down the rabbit hole and and go past the point of no return with believing all this crazy stuff his girlfriend tries to pull him back from the brink and she she takes this um this bit of parchment that they've been using to build a whole conspiracy theory and they believe that it's a piece of medieval french text with which they have translated as meaning you know that there are all these secret groups that meet together every hundred years and they've spun out the conspiracy theory from there so everything hinges originally on this bit of text and she takes it and says well look man what if we interpret this slightly differently what if we read it this way and interpret the words in a slightly different context well then it's just somebody's shopping list you know it's a medieval french guy going down to the market to buy you know milk and bread and eggs or whatever and you know she's showing that you can you find these things where you want to and it's it's a it's a decisive thing you decide to do it and then you know she takes him out onto the street and there's a a newspaper stand and she says, what if we measure, take the measurements of the newspaper stand and they measure the width and the height and all the different elements of it. And she says, oh, but look, this number here is the same as, you know, the, the height of the pyramids. And if we divide it by this number, then it's the distance between the earth and the moon and the earth and the sun and all, all the same sort of numerological stuff that he's been using to build his conspiracy theory. And she's just showing him this stuff is everywhere and it's meaningless. And it just, it's, if we want to search for it, and invest it with meaning ourselves well then we'll do it but that doesn't mean that it's real and that scene has always haunted me and, and i guess that sort of frames my chris put this into my head this week but that sort of frames my feelings about conspiracy thinking which is when i get deep into looking at conspiracy theories i don't often really engage with the with the details or the facts i'm, I'm more interested in the overall style of thinking the fact that they are making the connections in ways that kind of please them rather than always getting hung up on the details. But maybe for me, the conspiracy theory mindset was ruined from an early age by that sort of uh, that sort of thinking given to me by Umberto Eco. Great book, anyway, Focal's Pendulum. Uh, snobby literary types, including myself, have been guilty of referring to it as like the smart guy's Dan Brown. Uh, it predates Dan Brown by quite a few years. I think it's from the 80s. But anyway... I had some fun um, messages from listeners this week before we get to our main story. So on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, we had a nice message from uh, a gentleman known only as not Jonathan Frakes. And we, connection to a, a past episode, Jonathan Frakes, of course, did the voiceover or the commentary for the audio CD version of the Sierra Sounds, those uh, infamous Bigfoot noises that we did an episode on before. So go and take a listen to the Sierra Sounds. Anyway, this this gentleman, not Jonathan Frakes, says, I was very glad to find your podcast. Hope you can keep doing what you're doing for the foreseeable, which is nice. Um, I was watching the great 90s show recently, one of the first weird shows that really got me into the genre, beyond belief, fact or fiction. They're all available legally now on YouTube. Of course, I never thought they were arbiters of fact or fiction, but it was entertaining all the same and it's good to watch them after all these years with an adult brain and find the entertainment value is still there. Anyway, to cut a long story medium in season 2 episode 13, the first segment is a very contemporary telling of lord dufferin's ghost it's been a while since i listened to the specific podcast don't know if you mentioned it i didn't um i'll let you decide if it was a true story or simply an urban legend so that's nice um and i don't remember this show myself i do remember hearing about sightings like in in the 90s um I, I wasn't I wasn't watching any TV that was giving me these stories. It was mostly from books, but I did have friends at school who had access to uh, 
the channels, as they were called, if you had if you had access to um, like anything beyond the usual uh, Irish state channels, it was like fancy stuff, fancy notions, uh, and um, you could watch stuff like uh, sightings. I did have the X Files though, but I was I was too scared to watch beyond the opening theme music most of the time. Uh, and uh, Mr. Frakes, Mr. Not Frakes, mentions another reference to a previous episode in our Mothman episode. We told a story about. A, a, ref, a ghost appearing in a reflection of a gin jar, which is true, true story. <laughs> and um, this person, whose name shall be shall be a mystery, um, is connected, to, reckons they're connected to this. May, um, he says, my girlfriend maintains she's the one who found it uh, in that original picture when it was taken. They are friendly with the, with the folks who originally sent me that photograph. So a nice connection there. Also on Twitter, uh, David got in touch to say that he enjoyed the Picnic at Hanging Rock episode and what I consider doing an episode on a film called The Last Wave, which I honestly, I've only just come across. It's another Peter Weir film. It's, uh, and it's, it also has a sort of a horror theme and it seems to be based on like real life sort of pseudo paranormal or at least um, ethnographically unusual happenings. It's, it's, it seems to be dealing with um, sort of Aboriginal Australian practices that I've heard of as being called pointing the bone, which is like to do with cursing and stuff. I'm nearly certain that that's like a horribly dated and offensive way of referring to it. I haven't done any reading on this, but the film looks great. Peter Weir is always great. And I look forward to finding out more about that one. Over on Instagram, Peter gets in touch. He does business there under the name uh, Jacques de Molay, which uh, again makes me think of Templars, which makes me think of Umberto Eco, but uh, it suggests, have you read The House on the Borderland by W.H. Hodgson? It's Lovecraftian and it's set in Ireland and would make a great episode. So awesome suggestion there. I It's been on my radar for a very long time. I do like William Hope Hodgson a lot. I've read all of his Karnaki stories. He's like a, like a, a psychical detective, a ghost hunter from sort of about 1910. Uh, and thereabouts and I love his uh, his kind of seafaring ghost stories his story the voice in the night is one of my all-time favorite kind of spooky short ghost stories and is absolutely worth searching out the house in the borderland is about it's kind of inspired by his time living in Galway and it's about a mysterious house and sort of cosmic horror that happens there I have made several attempts over the years to get stuck into it I found it a bit stiff and it, I, I think I need to approach it you know, just at the right time and the right day, maybe on a holiday, something like that, when my mind is in the right place. But to help me out, uh, Jacques de Molay sends on uh, a nice audio version from BBC, read by none other than Father Ted's Bishop Brennan. So that makes it go down a little bit easier as well. So I look forward to getting stuck into that. So as always, folks, if you have um, if you have interesting things to pass on or ideas for episodes, I can't guarantee I'll get around to them soon. But I do write everything down in a big notebook, and I hope to getting I, ho- I do hope to get around to all of them. And also on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird podcast now if you want to help out the show because you enjoy episodes you can not you can you can do that in a wonderful non-committal way because over on buy me a coffee you can buy me a coffee Uh, and big thanks to the folks who've done that recently really helps uh, keeps me in java but it's not java i'm drinking tonight because we have of course our beer for the episode this time it's uh, kinnegar beer uh, from donegal and it's called bucket and spade and this is a Session Rye IPA. So this is what I'm going to be enjoying while uh, listening back to my interview with James Harding about the movie House. It's a little bit fruity, 
uh, the beer, not the not the film, which is not my favourite, but I'm enjoying it, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode too. I am speaking with James. Uh, James, I've I asked you some time ago if you wanted to come on the show, and. Uh, what you might like to talk about, and you you said the movie House or Houseu, as I know it, and um, just that's to... that's right, yeah. Well, it was it was a movie that uh, one of the last times that you were up in Canada, we watched in in my uh, former apartment, like a yeah, small as it was, we all cr- we all crammed in there, and uh, I feel and, like after had a good time. After a few beers, we said Let, let's watch something unusual, and I think you it's... you cracked your knuckles and said, okay, I've got. I've got something. I've got to pull something. <laughs> yeah, not 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 the first time I've done that. It's a, it's it's definitely a go-to movie for after after a couple of cans, and you know you're all feeling fairly convivial and uh, and looking for a good time. It's a, it's a it's a tight ninety minutes as well, so you know no one's falling asleep during it either. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, there's uh, no there's no time to waste with this one. James, <laughs> let's briefly uh, talk about your credentials. Um, as a, as a creative guy, as a as a musical guy, as a pop culture guru, I don't know. I watch a lot of stuff and I play a lot of stuff. I don't know whether that qualifies me to be an authority on just about it. I'd, I'd say I consume just enough different stuff to not be an expert on any of it. <laughs> I'm a full full on uh, cultural jack of all trades, but uh, I watch a lot of movies. I, I primarily for me as a creative person, I make music and I sing and, and I play guitar and I program synthesizers and everything. You're the main man behind, or one of the main people behind, uh, Toronto Rockers Villainest. I've been listening to one of your recent albums, Vision of Light, which is a tremendously enjoyable experience. So I recommend that to all listeners. And I will, of course, put a link to that. I might even slip a few seconds of it into the post so people can have a listen. It's great fun. I, I, there, there's definitely an element of old old school nostalgic rock there, and a bit of '80s, and a bit of sort of sort of the action movies that I think we're both fond of from that period as well. But that's not the only thing going on with with Philanest, is it? Yeah. So the the original. Um like mission statement of villainous, which is always much harder to describe than it is to listen to. I always tell people about what we sound like and they go, ah, okay, I, th- I think I know what you mean. And then they'll come to a show or they'll listen to the album and they'll go, oh, right now, now I know what you were saying. You know, I was being polite before and you know, thought that you were just talking nonsense. And now having seen or heard it, I, I understand it. Um, but the original mission statement was to um, to blend uh, live rock music with the kind of synthesizers that you would get in early 90s video game consoles, mostly the Sega Mega Drive as we know it, or the Sega <laughs> Genesis as they would know it over here yes. now, because I, Can- I live in Canada now, have done for almost 10 years. Um, 
And yeah, we've, we've been doing that um, for a good few years now. I think we've been going for seven years. Uh, we have one album to show for it, a couple of EPs, um, and you know some, some stages that we've jumped on uh, along the way. Recently, I've been singing with some great guys from Cinemassacre and from a YouTube channel called Epic Game Music, James Ronald, a friend of mine over here in Toronto. Uh, they asked me to sing on a cover of Cheap Tricks Mighty Wings, which they uh, also matched up with Ken's theme from Street Fighter 2. So very much <laughs> in my wheelhouse. Like, I'll put so, a link to that yeah, stuff so, because it's tremendous. You're being very, you're being very modest. It's a tremendously fun video and your performance in it is <laughs> off the charts. Wait, <laughs> we're going to be doing some some more of those as well. I've been, I've been talking to the guys and we've, we've got one more pretty much in the can that's going to be coming out in a week or so, I think, maybe a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, let's, let's talk about House. So as we've said, it's the kind of movie you put on when you want to blow your friends' minds or impress them with your deep knowledge of uh, <laughs> world culture and uh, very, very strange movies. To me, James, there's no question that if I had seen this as a kid and I probably around college I saw trailers for it but I never I didn't see the film until until a couple of years ago at your place and um, no question if I had seen this as a kid this would have been filed away in the, in the bucket of like well Japanese stuff is just weird because I, do, I don't know about you but growing up I think we had this perception that Japanese culture was just uniquely strange and I, I think that's because we didn't have access to much of it and when we did come across it it was always something a little weird and I think I think we were surprised to see sort of western tropes kind of brought uh, kind of mirrored back at us which is a facet of some Japanese culture you know post-world war ii when, when they had the Americans and the baseball and everything and, and and seeing them reflecting some of this globalized stuff back at us in in a slightly different context always gave us this impression that um Japanese movies were particularly strange or extreme yeah, well, I think you and I are a similar sort of age. It's not too much between us, at least. Um, and I, for my part, my um, my experience with Japanese movies was probably because I was born in '87, and so uh, my first taste of it, like a lot of people, I think, in England at the time, uh, would have been when The Ring came out and introduced a kind of boom in the home video market for Japanese horror. So um, so in the US horror market, in the Western horror market, um, like everyone was a little bit tired of the kind of slasher fare that was coming out. You know, uh, Wes Craven had had a new nightmare and Scream had come out. So there was a lot of like satirical voice and everyone was just a little bit tired of the old tropes. Michael Myers was, you know, out of fashion and hadn't seen Jason in anything good for a while. And so people were, I think, looking for something a little bit new. And for the most part, like The Ring or the, the Govinsky remake, um, was what people were looking for. And then on the heels of that, uh, because it offered something different, it was maybe a little bit more um, otherworldly, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more uh, kind of focused on technology or on spirituality. Um, and it sort of fused a modern spirit with like a, an older feeling kind of ghost story. Um, on the heels of that, there was this boom of okay, people like this, let's release as many 
not only Japanese, but, you know, Asian. There'd be one place in town that had, you know, Tartan Asia and, and you'd be getting like Takashi yeah, movies that, or something. That's definitely what I was thinking of. And so, <laughs> uh, so like the Tartan Asia extreme stuff, which has some incredible <laughs> movies on it, but is, is definitely sort of playing up to this idea that like, what they're doing over there is just so much more than what they're doing over here. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it's true that there's a lot of pretty uh, out there movies on that label. So, you know, Takashi Miike, like you say, like Itchy the Killer was on that, which yeah. I didn't see at the time, but I've, I've since watched and is, you know, a bit of a bloodbath, like very, very <laughs> gleefully a bit of a bloodbath. And it was certainly more extreme in some rights than what was going on in in the West. But I think within like the Western market, we were seeing everything as it was coming out. We were seeing the, you know, regular movies of all sort of, you know, shapes and stripes and, and whatnot. Uh, but when it came to, you know, the Japanese output, the major labels that we saw were the ones that were sort of spitting back like the most extreme examples, you know, with the covers that would frighten you. No, nobody in Japan was marketing, you know, romance movies, you know, ordinary Japanese romance movies or, you know, thrillers or you're like, there was no company who was interested in trying to sell that stuff here, you know. Yeah, and exactly. Was... And, and there were romance movies and there were action movies and there were all sorts of other things. But because like of the boom that came in the wake of the ring, like the stuff that was being shown to us on the shelves, if I would go downstairs into the Melton Mowbray W.A. Smiths and be like, what's on DVD? Uh, it would be itchy. Get, yeah, it would be, you know, uh, all of your regular, it'd be Notting Hill, and then it would be Itchy the Killer, like, and yeah. now from Japan, here is... Here and is then this. on the other hand, you know, those of us who are into such things, we'd be aware of, like, the, the old Godzilla movies, and they were hard to get, like, I never walked into a shop here and saw them, or, or if you did, it would be, like, this imported DVD that was, like, twice as fat as a regular box and cost, like, you know, 40 quid <laughs> or something. Yeah, so we had, absolutely. We I think interpretation of of Japanese cinema because we were only getting the really, the really science fiction stuff and the really extreme stuff. Yeah, I mean, genre stuff is very easy to sell in any market, right? You go, this is an action movie, this is a scary movie, you know, and it's from here, and and it's great, and I'm I'm a huge kind of passionate fan of that if you say here's an action movie from vietnam great i want to see this like it you know i'd love to see what the differences in the production are when it comes to it there's a great one called fury that came out a couple of uh years ago um that you know blew my mind because it was it was something different great you know great sort of pastoral setting um you know very colorful really great uh, action choreography and everything and uh and you know it, it's fantastic and it is a selling point but it's important to know when you're doing this and when you're when you're watching these things that you're you're consuming a very small piece of what people from those markets are, are seeing themselves and you know i have to remind myself of that and i had to remind myself of that with something like house for example which at the time when it came out was viewed as a very strange movie. I don't, I don't think you could release this in any market and go <laughs> like, yeah, this, this, this is the typical thing that I would watch. Like there is a reason why people 
you know, release this over in this market. And there's a reason why people anywhere would would pick this up and say, uh, you've got to watch this. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. Um, yeah. And that's I think you could say that. Yeah. You could say that about a lot of the, the directors that you sort of throw out there if you were to say, you know, Japanese movies are more extreme than they are over here. Like if you've got your science on as and Takashi Miike's, like they are all pushing the boundaries in their own way. Somewhere in Japan, there's a kid who's only seen like early Sam Raimi films and early Peter Jackson films. And he thinks that American films are just zany. Yeah, like what, what are they doing over in America? <laughs> like who is this guy? Oh. And, and there's definitely, I mean, we watched this, um, we watched a great movie uh, over here uh, with your brother Donald. We watched a movie over Zoom called uh, Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder from Hell, which I think came out after Evil Dead. It certainly feels very informed by Evil Dead. Um, I'd have to look at which came at, like uh, before and after, but uh, very similar in format, very similar in tone. Um, and and yeah, so like there's, there's similar things going on in each market um, like at the same time. I was wondering whether there's any chance that Evil Dead itself or Evil Dead 2 anyway was influenced by the likes of House just strictly in terms of its mixing of horror with this very cartoonish kind of comedy but we'll get to it let's let's talk about House because like like we're trying to we're trying to situate this in in time and space I'm absolutely happy to talk about how out there House is and and how it will blow your mind um but also then to talk about, well, how, how, how did it get made? Why is it the way it is? And how was it received in its home market and at its time? In, in terms of spoilers, James, what I'm thinking of is, let's talk about the basics of the film and, and the basic setup and what we enjoy, but let's not, let's not um, get into the specifics about like what happens to any particular character at the end. Let's not spoil any of the big set pieces because this is an experience. And if anyone is this thing hasn't heard it, and um, I don't want this to ruin your experience because you should absolutely watch it. Agreed. So, I can get on board with that. So, James, what's the basic setup for this film? It's, so, it's... The, the basic setup for this film um, is that there are seven uh, school-age girls, uh, high school uh, girls, that are invited to one of the protagonist's aunt's houses, um, and the house eats them that's pretty much the entire plot <laughs> that that as well was the like one line pitch that uh Nabuhoki Wabayashi who is the director of the movie gave to Toho when he was making this screenplay as well so this is back in 1975 when they asked him to make something um and the genesis of of the movie is like actually very unexpected because you would think if you're making a horror movie the you think that the brief would be to make a horror movie. But in fact, um, what was happening at the time in the industry was that um, the movie industry in Japan was losing a lot of ground to television. And a lot of the things that used to be working weren't working anymore. Um, so uh, Godzilla, for example, who uh, Toho, who made this movie, uh, was, was paying their bills on the back of, uh, was kind of out of favor. I think there was one of the Mechagodzilla movies came out maybe a couple of years before and it did not do well financially or critically. And so they were very much scrambling for uh, any kind of answer as to what to do next. And the other studios, so there was Nikatsu and there was Toei as well uh, that, were, that were going around and I'm sure more that I don't know about. But the 
the trend at the time was to go for um, very formulaic, uh, violent or sort of semi-pornographic movies. They had something called the Roman porno and they had the pinky violence movies, which led to a lot of uh, studio-made semi-extreme, like, you know, just extreme enough to kind of titillate and excite um, movies um, that would get the audiences in. So there would have to be they'd have to be a certain length, they would have to have a certain number of nude scenes, and they'd have to have so much, you know, uh, violence or, you know, something to captivate in that regard in them. And so you get some great stuff like the Female Prisoner Scorpion series and um, Kenji Fukasaku is doing a lot of great Yakuza movies in the, um, in the early to mid-1970s. But all of these things are very much like filling a void that is coming in from like the decline of the movie industry from the 50s and the 60s when Japanese cinema was doing very well. So, um, so what they what they were doing was looking to the West for inspiration, and they saw that Spielberg uh, had released Jaws, and. The, the studio executives at, at, at Toho put out a call for a screenplay that would be the Japanese Jaws. My goodness, like, and <laughs> imagine being a producer and calling for Jaws and you get house. <laughs> anyway. That, yeah, absolutely. It's a, ve it's a very, uh, like, uh, it's a very interesting way to get from A to B, isn't it? To have that as your um, original brief to be like, we want the Japanese Jaws and then you end up with House. So I can tell you one of the reasons why um, why it ended up being the movie that it was instead of, of House. So Nobuhiki Obayashi, uh, who co-wrote and directed the movie, um, he decided to go at it from a slightly different angle. So he was given the brief of, we want a movie like Jaws because that was a smash hit and we want something that's thrilling in that regard. And he went, okay, well, if I talk to adults, I'm gonna get something very boring. I'm gonna get someone going like, well, why don't we make Jaws, but it's a bear. You know, the adults can only, uh, he said that adults can only view things in the prism of you know their own understanding and so paraphrasing there of course and i'm sure he said it in japanese as well but um <laughs> but he he thought how am i going to get something truly interesting truly cinematic out of this and so he went to his daughter uh i think uh shigumi is this is her name uh when she was i think she would have been 10 or 11 or so and said what frightens you? And she gave a few examples of the sorts of things that frighten her that aren't necessarily bound by adult logic, right? So if you ask uh, an adult what they're scared of, they'll be like, well, I'm scared of this alleyway by the side of my house and I think someone's going to come out and rob me and stab me and then that's going to be it. Because that's frightening, right? Because we understand, you know, the that that is what danger typically presents itself as uh, kind of going through life. But uh, his daughter, uh, the things that she was scared of was when I'm brushing my hair uh, like in the mirror, what if my reflection came alive and attacked me? Or uh, things like uh, 
I've got a strict piano teacher and they insist on a particular type of fingering. Um, and sometimes my fingers get caught in the keys and it feels like the piano is trying to eat me. Um, and then a few other things, a couple of other examples that she gave was um, when we go up to my grandparents' house in the countryside, um, like there's a well that we have to pull uh, to pull our refrigerated goods out of. What if I went to like get a melon and it was actually a human head? Or what if I went into the storage shed where we keep the futons that we sleep in, uh, we sleep on, and these futons are heavy. I'm always scared that they're gonna just fall down and I'll just get crushed by some futons. Uh, and so, all of these things, like very understandable things that as a child you would be scared of. Um, she, she gave us examples and obviously, and his uh, screenwriting partner just took that and ran with it and, you know, created a structure around those, those things. And that's how you end up with uh, a lot of the scares in the movie that end up feeling kind of dreamy, kind of like they wouldn't happen. Like they're not, they're not things that necessarily follow on with logic. There's no one, you know, spoiler alert, but there's no one like in the rafters of the house, like with a, a grand plan. Like it's not, it's not a home invasion where, you know, people are being gaslit. Like there are strange, unexplainable things going on in this house. And it, it's more than that. It's not just the, the plot and what happens, but the whole presentation of it is, it feels to me like a deliberate attempt to tell a story breaking the rules of, of narrative and breaking the rules of cinema that we've come to expect. And it's funny, you don't realize how many expectations you have. You know, we're trained to interpret film in a certain way with, you know, when, when, when the film cuts in this particular way, that gives us a clue as to whether it's immediate or whether time has passed. And, and this film just breaks with all of those kind of conventions and makes the whole thing feel weird and disjointed and it jumps between, you know, telling an actual story or just turning into a cartoon or having inanimate objects become like talking Muppet type things. And Well, there's a few different reasons for that. And uh, the, one of the main ones is that this was, this was Obayashi's first feature. And prior to this, he was the director of around, you know, 200, maybe even more commercials in Japan. So he was a commercial director. He started out as a student art filmmaker. He got a bit of attention through that and he got hired. I don't know whether it was by Toho or by sort of a subsidiary as a kind of staff commercial uh, director. And he said, like, all of my art friends thought they were, like, too good for commercials, but I thought, what, are you going to give me a budget to make a 60-second movie? Sure. And he said, like, so he said, there is art in being able to film anything. Like, if you can film the sky or if you can film this product in a way that makes you feel something, then, you know, there's value in that. Like, you don't, it doesn't have to be, like, your, you know, incredible vision all the time like you, you know just through the act of movie making you're, you're doing something uh you're doing something fantastic I think frequently in um, advertising you're less constricted by the rules of narrative because you're not necessarily i mean you're telling a story yeah, in a way, but you've got a, you've got a lot of things that you need to do in a very very short amount of time so it's, it's very condensed storytelling and you can feel that in in house like apparently some of the reviews after it said we're not sure if this is a movie or just like a, a series of commercial shots like that are just stitched together in you know a barely unrecognizable manner. Um, 
but his journey to being the director of it was actually like very um, interesting and very untraditional. So traditionally at Toho, if you were to direct something, you had to come up through that studio system. So you had to be an apprentice, then you had to you know be a second unit, and then you'd gradually uh, come up to the level of staff director. But when Obayashi presented the script for House to the head of Toho, they greenlit it, but none of the staff directors wanted to make it. They all said, if I direct this movie, it will ruin my career and I don't want that on my, <laughs> on my resume. So uh, they wouldn't let um, they wouldn't let Obayashi direct it because he was just a commercial director. Like he'd been on the lot a bunch, but he wasn't part of the system. Um, but because it had been greenlit, he got permission from Toho to make up business cards and, and ads and stuff saying, house is being made, it's coming soon. And then he, he launched a bit of a public campaign to get it made. So he, he got the soundtrack album produced ahead of time. Um, he, he got the script made into a novel that they sent out. They made a manga of it that they, they published in a magazine. And they did a very popular radio play adaptation of the script all before the movie had been, uh, been produced. So it didn't have a director. And he used that as fodder to kind of break the studio heads down. And eventually they were like, well, clearly you're quite passionate about this. Like, this is something that you really, really want. So it was a full-on, like, media assault where he was like, I'm the guy for this. Like, you gotta, you gotta let me do it. And, like, there, there's something really experimental about it. And I can only presume that it, it was as shocking and, you know, kind of st or st startling to audiences then in Japan as it is to us now. Like, he's breaking every rule in the book. He's mixing and matching uh, styles of... of storytelling and, and filmmaking that you you normally never see he's like i said he's playing with the every time he makes an a, a change from one scene to another it's like he's trying to outdo himself and how he rips up the frame or you know and he, he's and he, he he'll have things freeze like some of the characters will freeze while other things are still moving or he'll zoom in on something but it's not for the reasons we normally expect to zoom and and is this, do you think he has a, a vision? Like, is this moving towards something or is he just trying to have fun and break boundaries? And, you know, it, it made me think of, you know, Monty Python or Yellow Submarine a little bit in terms of they were just trying to change things and try new stuff for its own sake. They were excited with the, the possibilities. Yeah, I think partly he's excited by the medium. I think he he loves cinema as a, as a form. And so... From from the interviews that I've read and everything that I've seen, it seems like what he wanted at all points was to make the most cinematic thing you could possibly make. And I think, you know, if you're going at that and going, uh, well, let, let's take taste out of the equation. Let's take, uh, let's take pacing and, um, you know, anything that you would consider to be your normal traditional format throw it out of the window for every shot what's the most interesting most cinematic way that we can frame this and i think a lot of that comes from commercials um he was very influenced by impressionism which i'm not an expert on so i can't give too much context for but he was he was very influenced by your french new wave and and the the films that were coming out of there so 
it was it was very much about the power of cinema for him and he brought that into his commercial shots and a lot of the, the critics were right in a lot of ways and that a lot of these things feel like commercials in that there's a lot of lines that get spoken and then freeze frame and then the line is spoken again kind of in the way that you'd repeat like cigarettes cigarettes like in a, in a commercial just to like reinforce a certain feeling or an emotion within you and he and you can see that happening like he was a he was a at least a part if not a pioneer of the um the kind of commercial that you see being made in the movie lost in translation you know where bill murray's having to do the the ad for Suntory whiskey um like that was that was his wheelhouse in the 70s and so he would he was part of the the tra uh, trail that was being blazed at the time around it doesn't feel um, clumsy to me it feels deliberate it feels i never felt like i was in the hands of somebody who was being undisciplined or um you know, you know i i felt like he was trying to make a point i i felt as though he was saying you, you expect things to happen in a certain way because you've been trained to interpret film in this way. And he's, he's just reminding you that these are arbitrary boundaries that we have created and that, Hey, just, yeah. this could just as well work in some other way. If you allow yourself to be open-minded about it, why yeah, shouldn't this, a horror film this... also be a comedy? Why shouldn't, you know, a, a story be told with a mix of live action and cartoon and why shouldn't the film be dreamy and, uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, kind of like Lucio Fulci, who would have, you know, maybe in this period or a little bit later, would have also been making films where he was really interested in making them as cinematic as possible, and maybe was less influenced or less interested in whether or not the story made sense. Yeah, it's it's been very interesting to watch a few of the interviews around, like why they made certain choices, um, and they're very adamant um, talking about both Ashi and his his co-screenwriter that they weren't setting out necessarily to make a horror movie like it fell into the genre sure because that's what happens but they were they were setting out to make uh a fantasy movie like they're very uh like they like to emphasize the word fantasy around it so and you can see that in some ways in the way that some things are lit and with the way that the music kind of lilts in and out and is is a fairly constant presence within it. Like these are all kind of staples of fantasy movies. And I find I find it very interesting that um well, partially this is a budget decision, but uh because they were at Toho, they had access to the professional uh effects crew from Toho that were responsible for things like Godzilla, like really at the time at the forefront of cinematic special effects. And his choice was to say, no, I don't want to use these guys. I want to do everything. I want to do everything myself. So they were doing um, like very early, like chroma key, like green screen type effects. Um, and that would be a key thing in his movies later on. Um, and you know, doing all of this hand-drawn animation and really like every time, while it does feel very deliberate and it feels like it's, you know, a budding master of cinema kind of coming up and and you know, using all of the skills that he's just been like bursting to use in a narrative format. Um, from what I can gather, there's a heck of a lot of um improvisation going on with the effects and the way that everything is shot. Um, he 
mentioned that like he didn't do any storyboarding for it because he wasn't sure what the set was going to look like you know they, for all the preparation that they had they had two years before the script was made uh and between then and when it went into production everything was so up in the air in terms of the production and nothing was a sure thing that you know he was he was turning up on set every day um and creating a mood, and I think you can you can feel that they made the soundtrack ahead of time, and so they were pumping the soundtrack into the set like constantly as they were filming, <laughs> and you can really, and that I think is why the music feels so perfect, is because that is actually what the characters and what the actors are listening to, and as as I'm sure you'll agree, like once that melody gets into your head, Ken, it, it does not leave for several days. No. Uh, it really blew my mind in that one scene where the cat is on the piano and you hear like a, a version of the theme like meowed in like cat talk. Yeah, that's cinema, baby. That is, it doesn't get any better than that. Like every, every time that scene comes up, because so much happens in the house that you you kind of forget half of the scenes every time and i've seen this movie a lot i think one week i watched it three times i think i <laughs> i think i introduced it to some friends uh, i think i had some friends over and then uh i already had tickets after doing that to a screening of it at one of the cinemas down in roncesvalles so i i, I took uh i took my friend matt down to to see it as well uh and then I, I forget, I think I definitely saw it a third time. And so that um, that theme that was going through it just did not leave my head for about a month. Like I had to, um, I'll send you a link to this, but I had to make a version of it on SoundCloud just to get it out of my head. It was like a bit of an exorcism, but I always forget that cat on the piano scene. And every time it comes up, like I, I lift my arms to the heavens and just thank, thank the gods that someone thought to make that. Like it's the other. I don't think it, that's what it's all about to me. <laughs> not a spoiler, I hope, because it's not a key moment. But my other favorite scene was where, then, the the girls all have like silly nicknames. So Melody plays the piano, and the the camera is like slowly panning around her as she plays, and it's very mood. The the the, the lighting is very moody and. It's a very somber scene and the, the, she's playing the theme music like slowly and sadly. And you, you, you feel like this is a dramatic scene. Something scary is going to happen. And then the camera chills around and at the back of the room, there's like a, a shitty plastic like school laboratory skeleton, like <laughs> clapping along with the music way in the background. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. And like, I love that that's never truly explained. Like, I, no. I'd I'd love to come up with a, a story behind it or a or a metaphor that it's trying to do, but really, no. it's just it's cinema, baby. You can do it like that. I, and I think that is the large point of of House is that like this is something that you can't see on a theatre stage. This is the sort of magic that only happens in the movies, and and that that's like the core thing with Obayashi and that goes through all of his movies. His last movie was something called Labyrinth of Cinema about um, a group of um, a group of young men who get sucked into a cinema screen uh, like an old picture theater that's closing down that night so they're having like one last all-nighter movie marathon and 
Um, and they get sucked into the screen. They're going through all of these uh, different sort of set pieces. So they go through an old wartime movie. They go through a comedy. Um, and the, the core lesson of it um, is that uh, cinema is this, this wonderful, magical thing that can teach us um, can teach us morals, it can entertain it. The, there are things that cinema can do that nothing else in life can do. And, and primarily a fixation of his is the sort of teachings of peace because he came from uh, Onamichi in Hiroshima. And so he was, um, a lot of his friends uh, died in the Hiroshima bombing in 1945. Um, and so that is a, a constant theme like throughout this. And so he, you, a lot of his movies deal with the fallout of, um, of nuclear war. And he uses cinema as this, um, as this way of teaching the younger generations about the value of peace. Um, and, and that's something that he's always trying to do. So uh, his first scripts that he was he wanted to make was a movie called Hanagatami, uh, which was made only a couple of years ago and a couple of years before his death. Um, that was the first movie that he had made with the co-screenwriter of House. So it's what he wanted to make. That was always going to be his masterpiece. And that is about a group of youths that, um, that are coming of age in the sort of shadow of impending wartime and you know the inevitability of like the bombs dropping in, in at the end of world war ii um so it's always at the forefront of his mind like when he's making movies and he even manages to slip it into house as mm. well so yeah. um so the backdrop of um of the movie with a character of auntie um is she is a I guess she's not a widow because the, they didn't get married, but she uh, she didn't get married because her husband went off to war and he was shot down. Um, and as a result, she is left in this barren household. And so there is definitely a theme within this as, as sort of out there and as whimsical and as fantastical as it is, that there's a very serious theme kind of going through it of um, the traumas of war and the uh the kind of yeah the traumas of the previous generation being foisted through war upon the the next generation i think that's what ends up making this movie feel a little bit more poignant than yeah. a lot of people give it credit for like the the characters themselves like you say like so the names of the the names of the girls are mac who is called you know, Mac, because she's like one big stomach, she loves to eat. Uh, sweet, who's just, I think, very, very sweet. Uh, gorgeous, or, or Sherry, uh, who her main thing is like, she's a young beauty. Melody, who plays the piano. Kung Fu, who is very physically adept and likes to fight. And uh, not too many spoilers for this, but she spends a lot of the movie fighting uh, household objects that come and Try and get uh, by and large the least useless of them like she, <laughs> she's the most <laughs> effective she's, she, she's she's got some agency to her for sure uh she's she's always quick on her feet if something's coming after her when she's chopping wood or something she's she's ready um and then there is prof who is one of the <laughs> last so her her thing is like she, 
logic is her thing and so you know she's she's one of the last to accept that there's something you know otherworldly going on here and she's always looking for the for the for the answers like there's there's a part where there's a locked door and there is no explanation other than you know the house is haunted and it's trying to keep you in uh and there's there's a part that always makes me laugh where like after all of these things that have happened and a lot of things have happened at this point we're about an hour and 10 minutes into the movie and prof goes i think it's a security system yeah. like yeah. It's, it's, it's probably fine <laughs> we just got to switch it off uh and then finally there is fantasy who is um a girl who's kind of got her head in the clouds and she fantasizes about their teacher mr togo coming to rescue them but Every so often through the movie, we cut back to Mr. Togo, and he is just a buffoon. Like, well, for one, the reason that the girls are on their own in the first place is because he, well, uh, this is by the machinations of, of Blanche, the witch cat, but he falls down some stairs and gets a bucket stuck on his ass and has to go to the hospital. So... <laughs> He's not the knight in shining armor that fantasy is no. is uh, is looking for. And throughout the movie, the, like they'll go, it's okay. Togo's on his way. He's gonna <laughs> he's gonna come and save us. And then it'll cut back, and he's just like eating noodles or something. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's in some ridiculous situation. Very much, very much, uh, as as your brother Donald would say, a bit of a McGee. Uh, did Did you feel there was some like a theme of kind of? maybe jealousy from the older generation to like, you know, these young people who just want to have a good time and have their lives ahead of them. Whereas, you know, we got literally atom bombed and, and this kind of, it made me think of the film Matango. Do you ever see Matango, the mushroom I people? I haven't, no. Oh, hey, uh, call back to the beginning of the episode, to the intro. Matango is, of all things, a Japanese movie version of the short story, The Voice in the Night, by William Hope Hodgson, who I was talking about. Again, it's no, just, but... it's a film about kind of young people in, in Japan in the 60s and how, I suppose a bit like Ireland in the 60s and 70s, when, when people were starting to see themselves as a, as a progressive forward, you know, modern nation. We had, we had a way to go, we still do. But, you know, this idea of, of reinventing yourself as, no, we are, we are capable of being a modern forward looking country. And, and then older people resenting this because maybe they didn't have some opportunities, which in Japan um, obviously very specifically is associated with the war and the bomb. I, th I think I mean, actually probably comes at it from the opposite angle. I think there's a lot of times in this where he's very distrustful of the adults. Um, I think he's, it, he, for all the things that happen to these girls in this, like, um, he is throughout his movies generally very protective of the younger generation and um and i think the fact that the adults in this movie are fairly ineffectual um i think he's he's trying to use sort of cinema as a bit of a warning here that you know the adults are maybe not going to save you so for example they meet the watermelon man at the beginning which side note is the composer of the themes for oh. the movie the, the dude with the with the watermelon he's yeah, uh, yeah. well he 
he's the composer of the themes, uh, and then they got a younger band called Go Die Go to uh, to play it and do arrangements of them. But he's because he refused to do it as his first like full on orchestral score because he thought the movie was stupid. He's like, I'll be in it as Watermelon Man, but <laughs> but like. I want to be a great composer. I'm not going to be a great composer if the first thing that I do. Like, Can I say the watermelon is man is maybe the silliest thing in the film? Like he wasn't helping. <laughs> I know for for all of it for all of his airs about the integrity of musical scoring, <laughs> like he he was he was pretty happy to to go on screen and and you know stump his little feet about and. Uh, Oh, here's a question. Yeah. So the, the, like, the format of the film reminds me of traditional Western haunted house ghost stories, right? We, effectively, that's what it is. It's a, it's a haunted house story, uh, albeit one that's it's told in, in a non-traditional way. And, and that puts me in mind of things like, honestly, stuff like, you know, the first Resident Evil game, which was a Japanese-made haunted house story. And uh, I, I've, I've seen the original Sweet Home, the film that the, the original game yes. was based on. Yeah, and that came a little bit later, yeah. It feels like a serious take on, on the same topic. My question is, are they deliberately imitating sort of classic Western ghost stories and, and haunted or is there a haunted house tradition in Japanese horror that is its own thing? Um, the, this, I'm not necessarily an expert on this. And if, uh, when I say necessarily, I'm not an expert at all. But I know that ghost stories are much, much more prevalent especially and there's a lot of uh 60s cinema for example that are around sort of spirits occupying houses and and different spaces so like there's there's definitely a tradition i would say sweet home feels like it has some western influence to it especially the screenwriter when i was watching an interview with him uh said that he took the premise of it from, I think it was, uh, Walter de la Mer. Like there's a Walter de la Mer poem or short story that he took the initial inspiration from. And so I guess in that way, there is, uh, there's definitely some, uh, there's definitely some Western influence in there. I think he mentioned that the Walter de la Mer short story was, several girls go into an older house uh, and there is a, there's a chest in there and through various happenings, they all end up like locked in the chest. Um, I, I haven't read it, but uh, I thought it was interesting that he was, he was taking um, an influence from, from something fr from the West rather than sort of your usual sort of Japanese traditional ghost stories. Fantastic. I guess, um, looking towards the end of the show, James, uh, what is it about the film that makes it your go-to? You, you, you spring it on people frequently, you watch it over and over again. What, beyond the fact that it's just incredibly strange the first time you, you encounter it out of context, like what, what is going on here that brings you back time and again? Well, I think there's just something really joyful about it for a horror film. I think the fact that it is made with so much love for scenario it's not necessarily it is scary in the fact in the way that a lot of the fates of the characters uh are quite shocking but 
one of the things that I that I delight in every time is just the the how did they do thatness of it all. So you'll go through and like you say, shot by shot, you go like, why did they make this choice? Like, why does this look like this? Why is it so energetic at all times? And I think it's infectious. Like, there's there's something like brilliantly earnest about it, and there's something very loving. And I think that's something that w when it comes to a movie that I want to put on and I want to watch, like I would put that on over something by Takeshi Miike, like for example, a lot of the time, because most of the people that I would watch movies with, um, you know, I don't know whether you want to see limbs going off in all directions and sort of showers of blood going off and, and everything. And a lot of these things can be quite depressing. If you, you know, like I say, if it's, Midnight's after the pub, you had a couple of cans and you want to be entertained by something. And I'd, I'd recommend watching this in any state of mind. I've, you know, watched this Stone Cold Sober as well. Please, please don't get me wrong. Um, the, there's a joyfulness and there's an earnestness to the craft of it that I think comes through. And I think Kobayashi as a director generally has this great youthfulness to him that he kept even all the way through to his 80s and, you know, to... Uh, when he eventually passed away, he was always the most energetic filmmaker. Like, like I said, Labyrinth of Cinema is three and a half hours long, I think, and it never lets up. It's constant, constant, you know, new shots, green screen, colors, you know, characters flying off in all directions. And so he never, this is his first feature, but it's indicative of like an energy that he had and that he never let up on. And I think you don't really get movies like that anywhere else. Like he's a very unique filmmaker in that regard. And House is just like the best, most concise way of like capturing that energy in a bottle. And, and even as someone that doesn't watch films or you don't like horror movies or you don't like, uh, or, you know, God forbid you don't like films with subtitles or something like that. <laughs> There's, if you watch this without subtitles, you would still get it and you would be, I think you'd still be delighted. Um, and there's just, yeah, there's just something about that that I find very infectious. And it's something that I, uh, that I generally want to pass on to, to others. And I think um, it's something that I think would be a lot more well-known if it had received like a Western release uh, around the same time as like the ring boom that we were talking about earlier. Uh, but it didn't, it was actually only in the late 2000s that it got a criterion release. And so it was released with like full context. There was never a point in the West where it was like some dusty VHS that you'd pick up like in, yeah. you know, in, in your corner store that like no one else knows about. So, um, so just the fact that it came out a little bit later when, um, when I think that, uh, that rush for like different, uh, Japanese cinema had, had kind of had not necessarily died down. The, the, the appetite was still there, but it, it didn't fall into your, you know, guitar and Asia extreme label, uh, releases. Like we were, I was definitely ready to, to, to watch this and to kind of consume it with, uh, with, with full, force and i think when it came and i, I eventually watched it uh i it, it was just always something that i want to pick up again thanks james your enthusiasm for the film is wonderful 
So finally, James, where can people find you online? What, what, what cool stuff that you work on should people be checking out? Yeah, so I, uh, like we said at the start, I have a band called Venice. We do um, Sega Genesis-based electro rock and roll, which, like I say, makes more sense once you listen to it. Uh, we make a lot of movie. Uh, we make a lot of songs about movies. Uh, we have a song uh, about the Stallone movie Cliffhanger, for example. If that floats your boat. Uh, we have a song called Escape from Space Jail, which is kind of an imaginary sequel to your Escape from New York, Escape from LA type movies. This is all stuff that I couldn't say as eloquently at the beginning of this, this interview because I hadn't had my coffee yet. Um, and then outside of that, uh, I think I can say the name of the band now, but the, the one that I'm in with the Cinemassacre guys and Square Painter and Epic Game Music, the band is called Rex Viper. Uh, I, for for all of their lapses in judgment, I am currently singing lead on a lot of these things and uh, screaming my heart out. I'm very scared of when we eventually have to sing them live. But right now, it's a it's a video project um, with 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 James Rolfe on guitar and um, and James Ronald on lead guitar. I'm doing some amazing production work um, and. Uh, it's very exciting. We've got a video out coming, I think, on the Cinemasca YouTube channel. You can find me on at Villainist on Twitter. That's probably where I'm the most active. We've got um, we've got an Instagram at Villainestagram. Um, and then also look out for the FP3, which I think is coming uh, this year that I'm doing the soundtrack to. That's not going to be for a little while, but uh, I've, I've got some reels through. I'm doing some cues for it. And uh I think that's going to be one of the, the fun next steps for what I'm doing. Lovely. Uh, I'll put all of that stuff in the show notes so folks can check it out. And I absolutely recommend that you do because there's some, there's some top stuff. And I, I look forward to that new video because the last one was amazing. And that's about it for this episode, folks. Hope you've enjoyed that. Huge thanks to James once again for joining us. And uh, don't forget about that. Buy me a coffee. I need my coffee. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider uh, checking that out. As always, on Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. And as a special treat in lieu of my usual theme, we're going to be seen out instead by the entire villainist cover of none other than the House theme music. This is really special. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening.